Well, good morning. I'm glad to be back with you guys. It's been a little while. Um, I've been rooting for you for, from afar as I hear uh, updates on how the Loma, Loma's going. And I remember probably like maybe three years ago or so, talking to John and Terry about that and said, you guys can't do this. We make fun of people who do stuff like that. You can't, you can't go start a coffee shop. That's, and, and to the Lord's glory, he's done some great things. And so um, I want to thank you as your, I'm one of your missionaries. Maybe you have forgotten, maybe you didn't know, didn't know that, but I'm one of your missionaries of some of 5,000 in North America whom you support as part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'll give you an update on what's happening. We have a picture, we have a new building, and this is the only picture I brought. I'm really sorry. I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the dad who had like the fourth kid, and he got no pictures of the fourth kid. Kind of, <laughs> looks like all the other kids. You know, the first kid has everything. The last kid, yeah, it just gets nothing. Um, but to my invitation, come see it in person. Come see it for yourself. Come, come stop by. We have some coffee. I'll tour you around. It, we went from about 1,600 square feet to 5,200 square feet. And so it's really increased our opportunity to do ministry. And our prayer had been that that's what would happen. That it wouldn't just be, okay, now we have a more comfortable minivan to ride in. That it wouldn't be that. That it would be, no, now more people are coming, hearing truth. And that's what's happening. We've, in our large group Bible studies, there's been about 20% more students have been attending. It used to be when we were on campus, we would you know, be in a different room almost every week. And they would come five minutes before we start and leave five minutes after we're done. Now they come about an hour before we start and linger for a half hour afterwards. And so we give a lot more time to connect with people and, and communicate truth to them. So it's been great. Um, and in fact, I was telling some other people for the first service that we've our students have done more gospel sharing this last couple of months than they've probably done in the last two years. And I don't know all the factors that have gone into that. I think God, just at the right time, was laying us several things in position. You know, one, this building. Two, uh, a lot of our students went on summer mission trips and had to share the gospel a lot this summer. Uh, three, uh, Jenny and I were part of this little group of uh, 40 missionaries that um, have had these prayer cards go out to a lot of our Southern Baptist churches and, and we're getting letters, hey, I'm you know, so-and-so from Tennessee and we're praying for you. And this is the GA class from um, Alabama and we're praying for you. And, and so we've been kind of emboldened to, all right, well, let's try some new things. Let's get out there. Let's do this. So it's, it's going great. It's going fantastic. And I invite you to come see it firsthand. So verse 1, chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke, we're continuing in the series of crowd control. And remember, Luke is, of all the gospel writers, he's trying to write to Theophilus a, an accurate account. This is what really happened. These are the, I know you've heard some other things. Like I've even read some other things. I'm going to give you the accurate account of what's happened, Theophilus, so you'll be convinced and, and I'll win you and you'll be converted. And so in all this, he's writing these vignettes, these pictures of the life of Christ. And what is happening is crowds become swarming, drawn to crowd because he can solve your problems. And you can touch him, and you're no longer hurt or sick. You can have a dead daughter, and he shows up at the house. And he goes in the back room, and she comes out walking and living again. That's going to get some attention. That's going to get some crowds. And they are. They're swarming. And so Luke has these accounts where Jesus begins to thin the crowds and expose really what's there. Expose that you're not believing in, in the Messiah, I really am. You're believing either in the kind of fast food restaurant, give me some quick grace, give me some quick mercy, give me some quick gifts, 
or you're believing in the, hey, we're going to re- be Exodus number two. We're going to go and overthrow the Romans and finally restore the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon's, and we're going to be the strong Jewish nation. God's going to rule the world through the Messiah. And so he's thinning the crowds. And, no, that's, that's false. That's false Messiah, false gospel. That's not what's happening. Verse one. So in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. He said some stuff. And so this is probably the most stark picture of the masses. Not just, a lot of times it's, um, you know, many were gathered around. There was, you know, a hillside full of people. But now it's getting dangerous, a little violent. If I can only get to him and all you people are in my way. So, I mean, I've been in New York City. I'm going to get through here. I'm going to move you aside. I'm going to, I'm going to get to him. So he begins to say these things, and it begins to be a series of things that, that the primary purpose is not to thin the crowd, but that's what happens. So verse 1, second part of verse 1, he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Let's back up a little bit. The Pharisees were the very best religious people of the day. The Jewish culture, Jesus merging out of Judaism, Jesus is Jewish. They were the very best Jews that you could know. In fact, if, if you... If you could be the person you really wanted to be, you would be like one of them. In our day, it would be, think about who is the best Christian you know. And whatever your categories are, oh, they're always having a quiet time, or they always have time for people, there's just a big heart, they have these gifts. I mean, whatever all your categories, who's the, the best Christian ever? It would have been the Pharisees. This is who you want your daughters to marry. This is who you want your sons to be, the Pharisees. He says, beware of the leaven. Beware of this trait they have and they pass on. And in fact, we share the same fallen condition. Beware of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, in its root definition, is simply play acting. It is, uh, comes from you know, the stage. Put on this mask, and now I'm happy. Put on this mask, now I'm sad. Now I'm a bad guy. Now I'm the good guy. Now, now you can't see me. And play acting. It's pretending to be something that you're not, performing something that you're not. And what Jesus is saying is these Pharisees who seem to be the very best examples of someone who's living under the law of God, they're just a bunch of fakers. In fact, they are not righteous in God's eyes. They're trying to make their own righteousness. How we would say it in our day would be We're finding righteousness in something other than Jesus. Think about this. What is it that you might count on in order to feel like God's happy with you? What are the thing or things that if that happens or if you do this, that that moment or that day you feel like, yeah, I mean... There's a little more peace between me and God now than maybe before. What is that thing? Whatever it is, it's similar to the leaven of the Pharisees. Let me show you a picture. Let me give you an example. This comes from a resource called the Gospel-Centered Life. It's a fantastic Bible-centered resource. And in fact, the next example I'm going to give comes from that. And what this says is, at conversion, a person sees their need for Christ. They see, I'm sinful, 
and he's holy, and this, there's something between this margin, between this gap. Something needs to be in here. And so they trust Christ, trust the cross, trust the work of Jesus. And then what begins to happen is a person should, a believer should have an ever-deepening understanding and awareness of their sinfulness. And so not that a person does more sinning, that, oh yeah, when I first became a Christian, I only sinned about three times a week, and now it's like five times a day because Jesus covers it, so whatever. I'm not saying that. What they're saying is, you don't know how bad you are. The person who may have the first time in Christ see that, you know, I, I really do try and get control of people by raising my voice, by getting angry. And as they grow in Christ, they say, oh, you know, I also try and control them by withholding affection or affirmation or comfort or pleasure. I'm, I'm a really big manipulator. I had no idea. The deal is that we see how, how sinful we really always have been. It should always be deepening. The other side of that is we should have ever-increasing awareness of God's holiness. I mean, Terry mentioned we'd seen this song. We cannot measure his holiness. But the Hebrews, they didn't have a superlative in their language. There wasn't the good, better, best, bestest, wouldn't know that. They could just, when they wanted to make something important, they would repeat it. And the maximum repeating would be three times. So holy, 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 that's the holiest. There's no fourth holy. So God is the holiest there ever is, ever will be. We should ever increasing. And so what happens to those who live hypocritically is they begin to do one of two things, or both. Begin to either pretend they're not really as bad or perform and think that, well, I can get to God's level of holiness. Let me give you some examples of pretending first. Here's some examples. Um, a person may be creating their own righteousness. Job righteousness. A person might think, look, I'm a hard worker. God worked six days of creation, made workers, so surely he'll reward me. Family righteousness. Look, I, I do the right things as a parent, so I must be more godly than the parents who can't control their kids. And no one ever posts this on Facebook, but the people, you know, turn sideways, look at the grocery store or at the park or at the wherever. And those kids are acting crazy. They must be bad parents. I must have some righteousness of my own. That was the problem of the Pharisees. As they were trying to create a righteousness of their own. Not trusting God for righteousness. Theological righteousness. This would be my, my tribe. I'm in a lot of these. I have good theology, so surely God prefers me over those who have bad theology. I understand. I know the three holy, holy, holy thing. I know that deal. I, know, I can say Hebrew stuff. Surely God prefers me. Surely I'm better than people that, oh, that's the, that's, I'm right that down. It's the first time I've heard that. Surely I'm in better standing. Intellectual righteousness. I'm a reader. I'm more articulate. I'm more culturally savvy. Surely I'm superior. I need some more. Schedule righteousness. The person who's self-disciplined and rigorous. This is a person who, they never miss a quiet time. I mean, it is same time every day. Boom, three chapters, write stuff down. What is wrong with you people? Why can't you just get up and have a quiet time? 
What's wrong with you? Self-righteousness, a righteousness that they're doing. The corollary to that is the flexibility righteousness. The world's a busy place, and I don't get swept up in it. I'm not caught up in all that scheduling business. I just kind of go with it. Whatever God wants, whatever the Spirit wants to do, I just do that. I'm always make time for others. I'm never going to put my quiet time before a person like that other person does. Again, self-righteousness. We get some more categories. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor, disadvantaged, the way everyone else should. I mean, this is a tremendous thing, Operation Christian Child. Uh, I mean, I hope you're going to do it. Everyone should do it. Um, but we can feel righteous about that. Oh, yeah. Eight years in a row. Been doing this eight years in a row. Who knows how many untold numbers of children have been blessed. We feel righteous about that. Legalistic righteousness. Look, I don't, I don't do bad things. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Uh, uh, many Christians aren't concerned with that. Many Christians have just muddied the water of holiness. And they just let they, the culture has just so infiltrated them. But not me. No, I, have, I have a limit at what rating movies I'll watch and nothing more. I don't care how fantastic the trailer or how helpful. No. That can be a source of righteousness where we really feel like I don't need Jesus in this area of my life. I'm taking care of it. I'm, I'm taking care of the wedge. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely. I don't get into debt. I'm not like all the materialistic Christians who they just, they're scurrying after all the latest and greatest of everything. So clothes and electronics and vehicles and vacations and all the rest and schools and books, they just are just like the pagans. They take a big, big swipe at all the stuff and give me a big cradle of it. And the only difference is they say, thank you, Jesus, at the end. But not me. No, not me. I teach the crown financial class. Self-righteous, subtle ways we begin to feel righteous. Couple, couple more. Political righteousness. Look, if you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. Because clearly, I, I see the world perfectly. Tolerance, the very opposite of that. <laughs> Everyone we just talked about, I don't have a problem with any of those people. I can get along with all of them. I can get along with the theological fool, the intellectual person, the guy who's really fixated on the schedule, the girl who's like really nil. I get along with them all, just like Jesus would. Even that we can twist into a form of self-righteousness. Here is what I, I think is a danger. I'll put this picture back up here. I think the danger is we begin living a life that for the most part is powerless. We begin to live with a cross of Christ that's not much more power than when we first began. Most of the things I ask these leaders in our ministry I meet with each week, I tell them, look, tell me what's the most exciting thing God's doing in your life this week? What I'm looking for is show me how big the cross is. I mean, what we want to do here is this little top triangle, bottom triangle. We want to erase that stuff and just enlarge the cross. So it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The, the, Jesus, Jesus is needed more and more. He's supplying more and more. Rather than having just a small cross where he just, he's just a slice of my life. 
He's just one part of who I am. That's the pretending performance. We'll talk about the top one. Try one more time. We're not going to ask for answers, but play along. Think about this. Right this moment, at this very moment, if you need to visualize this by closing your eyes, do so. Picture what does God think of you right now? And you'll know, know that by what is the look on God's face as he looks upon you right this moment? Is that a look of frustration or disappointment? Maybe anger or sadness or indifference or maybe get to work or maybe stop it? If it's anything other than beaming joy, you're not seeing the Father. In the person of Christ, he is elated. He is forever pleased in the work of Christ in you. And somehow he has, he has dealt with your sin, past, present, and future, on the cross. Anything but overjoyed is the performance mindset. God's not beaming happy, so I must do something. I must span the gap. And no, the truth is Christ has spanned the gap. He's deeply satisfied in you in Christ. He adopts you in Galatians 4. I think this quote from Philip Yancey is so important. In those books he writes, that grace means there's nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. For pretenders and performers, this is welcome news. What will you pretend to be? What more will you do that's going to sway God to give you more of his affection and devotion and attention and leadership? Or what might you do or what might you have done that he will withhold that? If you're in Christ, nothing. All right, verse 2. And we'll move along a lot faster. Verse 2 and 3. So he says, Nothing will be covered up, nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that won't be known. There's nothing you've kind of whispered and said in the dark that won't be heard in the light. There's nothing you whispered in private rooms that won't be proclaimed on the housetops. What is this talking about? The thing he's saying here is, the Pharisees will be found out for what they are. And here's, here's the news. We are all recovering Pharisees. We share the same fallen condition. That those who put their hope in that, they'll be found out for what they are. You won't be able to just pretend your way through the judgment seat of Christ. When the end comes and Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised and everyone's brought before the judgment seat of Christ and everyone submits to him and those who put their hope in him, believe in God's promise, enter his rest eternal in heaven, those not enter Hades, you won't be able to sneak through pretending. You won't be able to sneak by performing. It will be found out. Verse 4. Here begins some of the thinning of the crowd. So I tell you, don't, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Why would he say this? 
Because following Jesus may actually get you killed. Probably not here. But in Jakarta, southern Sudan, it could get you killed. I mean, we're not that far. We're only a few months away from the persecuted church Sunday when we think about that and the voice of the martyrs. Certainly was the case for these guys. Several of the prophets met their doom. All the disciples except one would meet a, a violent, vicious execution. Thinning the crowd. Look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to trust me for righteousness, it may cost you your life. It may cost you your life, but it won't affect your destiny. It doesn't change grace. Verse 5. But I warn you whom you should fear. So not the ones who can harm you, kill you. Fear the one whom after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Is to tell you him you should fear. Fear the Father. Fear the Lord. There's this interesting kind of thing that happens. Um, it's usually more students who are, not, not every student has this happened to, when they're juniors and seniors, if they've had some kind of significant experience of growth in Christ, they begin to get somewhat fearless. I'm going to give you an example. This is a picture of a guy named Matt. Matt Jones is a senior. He, this, he went to the Philippines as a summer missionary this summer, and he was there for eight weeks. You also support about 5,000 international missionaries. One of these couples runs this thing in the, in the Philippines called Nehemiah Teams. It's this heavy discipleship and heavy evangelism program where Matt and three other American students would leave home base, travel up boat up the river, up the little tributary, and along the way, village to village, stop and see who wants to have a Bible study. And it'd be, you know, kind of like Paul's journey, circling again and again and again. And some people, sometimes they get chased out by the witch doctor. Sometimes they, people say yes. And then, you know, through a translator, slowly, methodically communicate the story of Jesus. And they're in this animistic pagan culture. And, and so laying Jesus on top of that, how he's the real rescuer. He's the real savior. The Holy Spirit's the real spirit. And so Matt kind of got to confront a lot of his fears. He's not really a good swimmer. He got the shower you know, once every two weeks when they go back to home base. And some people they would share the gospel with. They would visit again and again and begin discipling them to where before they left, they were able to baptize them. And they're now in these little churches, emerging little villages. When a person like that comes back to the States, they're not as afraid anymore of losing what before they thought they could hold on to. And I'd say Matt is a type of student whom, for the most part, his attitude is, look, if God wants to send me anywhere, anytime, at any cost, he's got me. Any, for the gospel, anything, anywhere, anytime, any cost. Begin to get fearless. When you come to the conclusion that what you treasure most will never be taken from you, what you treasure most, you'll never lose. You get a little more fearless in this life. Verse 6 and 7, talking about God's providential care. So yes, I tell you, fear him. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and are not one of them, for, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So fear not. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Sparrows were cheap. They're throwaways. 
in a sense, uh, in our family, it kind of go like this. We have this is the picture of these uh, annual flowers. And annual flowers are the ones you just kind of go in spring and you buy a flat of them and they're not that expensive. And you, you know, I'm going to plant this and, it, and it'll bloom for pretty much summer and then it'll be die. And I'll scoop it out and throw it away and plant a new one next year. It's a throwaway. And yet, we did this at our house and planted these things. And by my wife especially, these were never forgotten. Oh, these flowers. Look how beautiful this is. These flowers. But never forgotten this little joy. But even in that little thing, we would certainly never forget our kids over these flowers. The point here is, God has not forgotten your situation. Whatever has happened with you following Christ, whatever will happen, he's not forgotten about you. He's not overlooked you. The smallest detail in life, he knows, controls, concerns himself with. Surely you are worth more than all those small details. Surely you he is sovereign over. How would this thin the crowd? Well, here's how. It's going to get really bad. For them, following Jesus, it's going to get bad. Again, he's not the Messiah they are looking for. They're looking for one who will rise up. And this is, you know, this is fresh off the memory of the Maccabean Wars and, and how the Romans crushed them. And they're putting their hope in a militaristic national leader who will rise up, throw out the Romans, reestablish the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, and be, the, be with the people they thought they were going to be in Exodus, a people of God. And God would rule and subdue the world through them. He's not doing that. He's here to conquer sin and death. He's here to rule and reign over souls. And so thinning the crowd. It's going to get really bad. But don't fear. Just because it gets bad doesn't mean I've forgotten about you. Let me answer this question. What might it be that you're afraid of losing? Or what might it be you're afraid of missing out if you were to really submit to Jesus here and now in this life? What is it in this life you're afraid of not getting, missing out of, or you're afraid of losing if you really were to follow him, if you really were to drop all the play acting, really drop all the pretending, all the performing? I want to encourage you, don't fear because he's worth far more than that. Verse 8. Again, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, what's he talking about here? This means you don't share the gospel, you're going to go to Hades? Not exactly. You have two things happening here one denying Christ, and one blaspheming the Spirit. And they're not necessarily one and the same. Denying Christ is what Peter did. Luke 22, he records it. Rejects the rule of Jesus over his life. Says, no, I have nothing to do with him. And then in John 21, at repentance, Peter is restored. Blasphemy the Holy Spirit is a different order entirely. This is the persistent, unrepentant resistance to the work of the Spirit and the message of Jesus. Let me read that again. It's the persistent, 
unrepentant resistance to the work of the Spirit and the message of Jesus. It is a hardened heart that just stays hard. It's someone who's never repented. It's someone who's not a believer. I remember in college, this is in the Gospel of Matthew, reading this, and in this scene, you know, Jesus did these miracles, and the rich leaders, they weren't trying to discount him and say, look, the stuff you do, healing people, all this stuff, the only you're, you're the power of the devil. That's how you do it. You have the devil, demonic, satanic powers, and people stay away from him. That's how he's doing it. And he says, look, you're calling what God does attributed to the enemy, to Satan, in this persistent, unrepentant, that's blaspheming the Spirit. I had a, a, a mentor at the time who was like a father figure to me, and he, I remember asking him, look, I'm, pro- I'm a little scared about this. He said, Blake, if, if you're concerned about this, then you probably haven't committed the sin. If you're concerned about blaspheming the Spirit, it probably hasn't happened. If people blaspheme him, he's irrelevant to them. He's inconsequential, unsignificant. Verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, more thinning, when you get hauled into court or hauled into religious jail, don't be anxious, don't be fearful about how you should defend yourself or what you'll say. Thinning the crowd. You want to follow me? Okay. When they come get you with their spears and their swords... Asking what you believe, forcing you to recant. But don't be fearful. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. And then verse 12, some of the sweetest, most helpful promise in the New Testament. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This became particularly helpful to me this week. Uh, not in preparing a sermon. This is not talking about, hey, don't worry about what you're going to say when you get up there. Okay, 10.30, Holy Spirit kicks in, and boom. You, you speak from your heart. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, don't prepare for your Bible study or Sunday school class. or No, I'm not saying that. It's saying that when you're hauled in front of those who are against Christ, don't be fearful. Don't, don't deny Christ. It became important to me this week. I participated in the, at the university on a panel for a group called Haven. Haven is the student organization that's the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer group on campus. And they held a panel called, If I'm Gray, Can I Pray? And they had religious leaders from, there's seven of us there. And uh, I was the only, only evangelical. The rest were mainline Protestants. We had a Hindu guy and a liberal Jewish guy, and then a guy I thought was Orthodox, but he, he, didn't, he didn't play by party, party rules. So I have to participate, and I usually avoid this in the past. This happens almost every year. Usually we have a family conflict, but this year I have a student who's friends with one of the organizers, and um, this year uh, I just, for whatever reason, felt like I, I can't say no to this thing. And so 
I've been preparing. All right, what about this? The biological argument and the social argument and our, you know, the scriptures interpretation and all. We're trying to prepare for all these things that might be asked. We're told we'd ask questions by a moderator. We weren't giving them ahead of time. But we're, I was still pretty nervous. You know, students knew I was doing this. They hey, how are you feeling about this? I'm feeling pretty bad about it. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and then when it came to this text, kind of, oh, okay. All right. God, if I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to prepare, but Holy Spirit, you show up. And you fill my mind, use my mouth to be your voice to the people. My main goal was two things. Share the gospel and don't get kicked off campus. (laughs) And this may be the thing that at some point begins to remove us from universities. And I knew one of the students there had grown up in the Baptist home, and his father had rejected him when he came out. And so I wanted to share the gospel in maybe just a different shade than he's heard before. I talked a lot about, in our faith tradition, Christ ruling you, him being your king, that he runs your life. You don't run your life. And all of the things you may want or think or do, all those submit to him. I like to tell you, hey, we're going to invite up so-and-so. They got saved that night. That, that didn't happen. Um, my hope is the gospel was seeded. But one thing that did happen, I was freshly convicted how desperately we need ministry on the campus. I'd never been more thankful for InterVarsity than that day because all the other voices pretty much said, there's no problem here. You guys are doing great. And in nice ways say, don't listen to this mean guy down there who would use the Bible to harm you and hurt you and tell you you're wrong. That's mean and violent and antiquated. And I wish one of tell Gina next year, come on, you've got to be up there with me. Never more convinced that we need ministry. Because those are the only voices they're hearing. The church on Main Street and the church by the Country Club and the church down on South College. I mean, they're hearing a false gospel of a false Jesus with no hope, no rescue. And not even self-righteousness, that there's no problem. There's no sin problem. So, the point here, I was pretty nervous. What are they going to ask me? Came to, do I trust God or do I fear man? I mean, for those of us who want to begin dropping the act, am I going to continue to trust God? That Jesus is sufficient? He's enough? He really does work in power? Do I fear man? Fear not this difficult life. Oh, it'll be difficult. It'll be hard. Don't fear it. Because what he's telling his disciples here, he tells you now, you won't face any of it alone. Pray with me. Lord, I'm grateful for this promise. And in fact, it is a thing upon which we can live and breathe. That we do not face life alone. And because the world is not yet under your submission, your rule, your domain, it still rebels. It still kicks against you. We, we will feel the brunt of that sometimes. Jesus Give us grace, even this very moment, this today, this week, to begin seeing and releasing 
our stranglehold on things we do to pretend our sin's problem not as great as it is or things we do to perform that we just choke the cross. And we're about to sing this prayer in Christ alone. Lord, would you change that image on our life that those two small triangles shrink out and the cross just enlarges and fills the whole gap. We would trust you and not fear man. We pray this to your glory. Amen.